Chapter 9. Change the World Scrum has its origins in the world of software development. Now, it's sweeping through myriad other places where work gets done. Diverse businesses are using it for everything from building rocket ships to managing payroll to expanding human resources. And it's also popping up in everything from finance to investment, from entertainment to journalism. I'm often amazed that a process I pioneered in 1993 to aid software development has proven itself universally applicable. Scrum accelerates human effort. It doesn't matter what that effort is. In fact, I've begun to see it spring up in the most unlikely places, addressing the thorniest of humanity's problems. Think about some of those problems. For example, people living in poverty, which is not only demeaning, but spawns a host of social ills, from crime and corruption to war and destruction. Then there's our system of education, which is failing students the world over. Instead of teaching 21st century skills, we've mired our young people in ways of teaching and learning created in the 19th century. And the other out-of-whack element that comes to mind is government, which has seized up in many ways, predicating itself on ideas formed hundreds of years ago that no longer seem to fit with the way we live our lives. It's easy to throw up your hands at the latest news of people dying in Africa, violence in our schools, or the endless posturing of people in power. It just seems like too much at times. But those problems, the hard problems, are precisely what Scrum is designed to address. In each of those cases, people are now turning to Scrum to help solve those problems. And, just as in the business world, they're showing remarkable success. Education In some ways, bedroom communities are the same the world over. Lying a few miles outside a major metropolis, there were people moved to buy a cheaper house, raise a family, and send their kids to school without many of the problems of the big city. Alfen on the Rhein is a pretty typical town in that sense. It lies in the west of the Netherlands between Leiden and Utrecht, maybe 45 minutes from Amsterdam. As you approach the town by road on a school day, all the traffic is headed in the other direction to jobs elsewhere. Dairy farms and windmills, old and new, cover the countryside. Inside the town, the traffic is almost all bicycles. Hundreds and hundreds are headed to the local public secondary school, Ashram College. The school, like the town, is fairly typical for a Dutch school. There are about 1,800 students, ranging in age from 12 to 18. Holland tracks its students early, splitting the children among lower vocational programs, aimed at producing everything from hairdressers to mechanics to secretaries, higher vocational programs, aimed at gearing kids towards nursing, management, and engineering, and university-bound programs aimed at those heading for medicine, the law, or research. The kids on the lower tracks can enter the workforce at 16, while those in the higher track might spend much of their 20s in university and professional education. Each of the different tracks requires some core classes in common, though each group is taught those subjects separately. Ashram teaches all three tracks, and one of those course subjects is what Willie Wynans teaches to students at every grade level in the school, chemistry. I'm sure you have memories of high school chemistry, lab tables in straight rows facing the teacher at the front of the room, perhaps a week of lecture followed by a few days working on a practical problem with a lab partner, the choice of whom was often strategic and much stressed over. Maybe you liked chemistry, maybe it bored you to tears, and maybe Breaking Bad gave you a new appreciation for the potential monetary reward of good lab technique and the importance of picking the right partner. Whatever your experience, 
Once the teacher began talking about covalent bonds or some other abstruse concept, there was likely a near-audible click as you and your fellow students gazed out the window, doodled pictures, or thought about the cute boy or girl in the second row. Let's face it, in the American classroom, where chemistry leads, daydreaming often follows. That's not what happens in Wynant's classes, though. See, he says, as the students burst into the room and hurry to their desks, oddly, without sitting down. I don't do anything. It's 8.30 a.m. on a normal Wednesday in September, and Wynant's classroom does not look like one. None of the desks are in rows facing the front of the room. Instead, they're positioned so groups of four students can face one another. Instead of sitting down at the beginning of class, these students pull out a large piece of paper covered with sticky notes, put it on the wall, and gather round. The paper is divided into a few large columns. Alle items on the far left, then to doin, then in wheatfering, and finally klar. As you might guess, they mean all items, to do, in progress, and done. At the bottom of the columns are four additional headings, DOD, or definition of done, graphic, which points to the burndown chart showing progress toward their goal, and lastly, retrospective and velocity, where they measure how many points they accomplished during each lesson. Their sprints are usually four or five weeks long, ending with a test. In front of their scrum boards, or flops, as they call them in Dutch, a derivation of the word for flip chart, the students plot what lessons are going to finish today. They move the sticky notes they think they can accomplish from the backlog, alle items, to te doen, and get to work. Again, as Wynans likes to say, he does nothing. The students open their books and start to teach themselves. Perhaps more important, they teach one another. Wynans walks the room, looking at the scrum boards and burndown charts. Occasionally, he'll spot a place where the students are having a problem, or he'll quickly explain a tricky concept, or he'll randomly take a story from the Clar column and quiz each student on it, making sure all understand the concepts. If they don't, he moves it back to de doen. Part of the definition of done, you see, is that everyone understands the material. The students do have one part of the scrum board that is unique to them, a definition of fun. Not only does the work have to be complete, they also need to enjoy doing it. The three tests are trust, humor, and a uniquely Dutch word, gezelligeld. There's no good English translation for it. It's described as coziness, or companionability, or fun, or pleasant, or seeing a friend after a long absence, or spending time with loved ones, or simply belonging. Actually, that strikes me as a perfect way to describe the feeling of support, enjoyment, hope, joy, comfort, and excitement of being on a really good team. You don't have to be the police, says Wynans. We now have another way to deal with managing students. They do everything. They even assign themselves homework. Each team knows where they are in the material, the dates by which they have to accomplish interim steps, and if they'll need to do work outside of class to learn all the material in time. They are self-organizing. They develop smarter and faster ways to study. One team started with the test and worked backward. A bunch of 11-year-olds. Not good, I told them. Their faces fell. Wynans grins his contagious smile. Then I said, excellent. Scrum, or edu-scrum, as Wynans calls his approach, is introduced to the students on the first day of class. The first thing they do is choose teams, cross-functional teams. Students rate themselves in various categories, everything from bravery to math enjoyment to taking account of others' feelings to heading straight for the goal. 
Then the students are told to form teams that are cross-functional, that have all the skills needed to learn the material. This, says Wynans, teaches them something just as important as the chemistry. It teaches them to work with and appreciate people with different talents than their own. Tim Jansen is 17 years old. It's his senior year. He's now been doing Scrum for three years and is about to head to university, where he plans to study chemistry. He looks like your typical geek. I am someone who can learn faster than others, he says. But working together, you improve, you get better. I learn the material better by explaining it to others. He turns to Gudith Svartz, who is sitting across the table from him. She knows she can ask about content. I can ask her about organization. She can put it together better than I can. Gudith looks quite different from Tim. Slender, pretty, blonde. You get to know more about your classmates. You know who is good at which thing. Scrum helps the outsiders connect with the other parts of the class, chimes in her equally pretty and stylish friend, Monica Bowens. Sometimes you choose the team, and sometimes you get chosen. You learn they are better than you at some qualities. That kind of learning, says Wynans, is part of the idea, to make unconscious skills conscious ones. Skills that can be tested on an exam are far from the only important ones. Helping students learn to identify and value different strengths in themselves and others is a 21st century skill. That's something everyone needs to learn. After they pick teams, the students are taught how to estimate, not in hours or days, but in points. They then estimate each piece of the material they need to learn using the relative sizing inherent in the Fibonacci sequence by playing planning poker. Willie explains the idea of points quite simply. Ignore all the measures you are told. There are no absolute measures. If I weigh 50 points, he says, pointing at a slender high school girl, how many points do you weigh? Um, 40, she guesses. Why, thank you. I'd guess more around 20, though. At the end of each set of lessons, the teams do a retrospective, asking themselves, what went right? What could have gone better? And how can the team improve? This focus on teams, says Wynans, is sometimes surprising to parents. He tells the story of one mother who called up and said that her daughter had done all the work. Why was she being forced to carry everyone else? I said the girl had to have the courage to tell others to do more. She did, and test scores went up. The mother called back to thank me. The students need to learn not only to work for themselves, but to work together. The energy in the classrooms at Ashram is remarkable, and it translates into results. In the Dutch school system, evaluative grades run from 1 to 10, and 5.5 is considered an acceptable passing grade. In Willie's classes, a 7 is acceptable, and the students meet that baseline. Over the past year, says Wynans, test scores have jumped more than 10%. Willie learned about Scrum from his son-in-law, who works at a large technical company in the Netherlands that uses it. Willie's been a teacher for nearly four decades, and he says this is what he's been searching for the whole time, an approach that teaches children to teach themselves and to value their own skills and those of others, also to have fun while doing so. An important thing to say about Scrum is that it rarely remains a one-off for long. It's built to scale. In the Netherlands schools, for example, EduScrum is not dependent on one person, even as great a teacher as Wynans. While it may have started with Willie, and he may have convinced a few of his fellow chemistry teachers at Ashram to give it a try, it's now growing. Supported by the business community, 
There's now an EduScrum Foundation in the Netherlands that trains teachers and educates schools about Scrum. They've trained 74 teachers so far in all subjects in 12 schools. They plan on growing by 60 teachers and 15 schools a year. In five years, that will mean 300 more teachers and 75 more schools. A good start. I met with a few of the teachers from across the country, and they told me that this is the new Montessori. They see this as a movement. It's not just happening in the Netherlands, though. In Arizona, there's a charter school for poor, rural, Native American students that uses Scrum. In a few universities, they're starting to teach it. At the Harvard Business School, they've built a new classroom called the Innovation Lab, where all the instruction is based around teams. And as Professor Hirotaka Takeuchi of Harvard told me, when you teach teams, the way you do it is Scrum. While I was at Ashram, I spoke with some of the students there. When I asked what questions they had, one boy raised his hand. I can't believe you designed this for computer software, he said. It seems perfectly designed for high school. I felt tears in my eyes as I looked at this young man. I learned later he was autistic. Before Scrum, he'd been unengaged and resigned. Scrum had given him a way to move forward, to actually enjoy school, and to become a better, more complete person. Years ago, when I was trying to fix a few software companies, I hadn't realized that I was also creating something that could help fix people's lives. But it has. And perhaps nowhere more powerfully than in rural Uganda. Poverty. Uganda is one of the poorest countries in the world. More than a third of the people there live on less than $1.25 a day. The vast majority of Ugandans reside in rural areas where poverty is endemic and people struggle to subsist by farming small family plots. Many of these places are beyond remote, days by foot from the nearest market town. Families have a hard time sending children to school since their hands are needed to help on the farm. Girls especially drop out early. Life expectancy is 53 years. Infant mortality is more than 5% of live births, and about 6,000 women die each year from complications in pregnancy. The life of a rural farmer in Uganda is not an easy one. The Grameen Foundation grew out of the Nobel Prize winner Mohamed Yunus's Grameen Bank, which pioneered microfinance for the extremely poor in Bangladesh. The foundation focuses on helping lift the world's poor out of poverty, not by handouts, but by harnessing the underappreciated strengths of the impoverished. In Uganda, they decided to try to do just that, by giving the poor the ability to share and build knowledge. To do it, they recruited some 1,200 people in poor rural areas, people they called community knowledge workers, or CKWs. The foundation had already developed mobile applications for microfinance and payments, and they decided to give these knowledge workers not just banking information, but information they could use in their daily lives, which, in Uganda's case, meant it would be applied to farming. The foundation provided access to the best agricultural practices by giving the workers smartphones and conveying the information that way. Steve Bell of the Lean Enterprise Institute and a certified scrum master recently visited two remote villages and described how it works. There's a meeting of farmers standing up in a field. One farmer brought in a plant suffering from a disease. The CKW quickly looked through pictures on the phone until she found a photo of a plant suffering from that particular disease. Then, instantly available was the scientific treatment for the disease, 
a treatment that didn't require expensive pesticides or chemicals, one that the farmer could immediately act on. Bell says that fast transmission of actionable information would be powerful enough. But the app also links the farmers to others throughout Uganda. Using this connectivity, they can share precisely how much crops are selling for in the nearest market town, often days away. The farmers used to be at the mercy of middlemen who take advantage of the farmers' lack of market knowledge to set prices at whatever level they liked. Now, farmers know how much the middlemen are making. Bell told me the story of one woman who told him that the agricultural data alone doubled her yield. But the market data also doubled her prices. She used to get 300 shillings a bushel, but after she learned they were being sold for 1,000 shillings a bushel, she was able to negotiate a price of 600 shillings. Double the yield, double the profit, the same amount of work. That's what Scrum is designed to do, and that's how it delivered for her. Eric Kamara heads the technology group for the Kinshasa office of the Grameen Foundation. His group uses Scrum to develop their applications. He says that each time a group asks for a feature set, his team rates it on a scale of 1 to 7 on three questions. 1. How important is this work to the mission of helping the poor? 2. How will this feature contribute to the work of the CKWs? 3. Is there partner support for the feature? The foundation prefers to work with partners such as the Gates Foundation rather than alone. This allows Kamara to prioritize the work using objective criteria. Before Scrum, he says, people were asking for everything at once, and with the limited resources of a nonprofit, they couldn't do everything, so the effect was doing nothing. Now, in each sprint, the different groups who want features come in and pitch what they want done, and in a transparent way, they see exactly how their feature stacks up against others. It helps a group with precious little to leverage determine what will have the greatest impact. As I've seen elsewhere, this kind of work quickly spreads to the rest of the Kinshasa office, changing the way they do their 9-to-5 jobs. The office used to have the sort of weekly meeting that everyone dreads, an hours-long status update during which problems were stated and complained about, but little was done. The meeting lasted forever, and everyone left unsatisfied. Often the only result was laying blame rather than seeking solutions. Now, Kamara says, every team has a scrum board. Before the meeting problems and blockages become easily apparent. These days, the director of the office can simply walk around and instantly see where things are being blocked or stymied just from checking out the state of the scrum board. If you talk to people in the world of non-governmental organizations, a common complaint is that their ranks are filled with people who share purpose and commitment but lack discipline. What scrum can do is take people's passion and by giving them clarity regarding what they should prioritize, harness it. It's easy to make the business case for Scrum. If you use it, you'll make more money, a lot more. You'll get twice as much done in half the time. But the brightest promise for humanity lies with those people who have devoted their lives to helping the poorest of the poor. If Scrum can help these individuals who've been working on the margins to get the same effect, a giant step will have been made toward achieving a broad social good. Not only will that good arrive sooner, it will also be measurable. Scrum gives people the ability to measure progress easily. At the Grameen Foundation, they have what they call the Progress Out of Poverty Index. It measures just how effective each program is. They can poll and see exactly the impact those community knowledge workers with cell phones in rural villages are having. 
They can experiment with different ways of doing things. They can help people innovate their way out of poverty. For me, it's amazing to see Scrum returning to its roots. When I first started Scrum, I was inspired by the Grameen Bank and other microfinance institutions and how they help teams of poor people work together to leverage themselves out of poverty. They'd get together a team of them and have each person come up with a business plan laying out what they'd do with $25. One might want to buy a cart to sell fruit in the town square. Another might want to buy a sewing machine to make dresses she could sell. Only when all the loans on the team were paid back would the group be lent any more money. They'd meet each week to see how they could help one another. The results were amazing. Initially, the woman with the sewing machine might make enough money to feed her children. A few weeks later, she might be able to afford shoes for them. Then she could send them to school. A few cycles later, she'd have a small business and could start building a real house. At the time, I told the software programmers I was working with, these poor people have no shoes, and yet they can leverage their way out of poverty. You have shoes, but no software. They've figured a way to work together to get out of misery. Are you willing to do the same? And so Scrum was born. Nonprofits are just one area where we can innovate social good. What about how we organize ourselves? What about government? Government. Government is not only how we organize the public sphere, how we get roads and police and courts and the DMV. It's also how we formalize who we are as a people. It is a codification of who we believe we are. In the United States, the fundamental aspirations of the American people are captured in a document signed by a bunch of rebels who surely would have hanged separately if they didn't hang together. The Declaration of Independence. Penned by an aristocratic, idealistic, slaveholding landowner, the Declaration, surprisingly, captured a radical concept of what kind of people revolutionary-era Americans wanted to be. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. It's hard to appreciate in the modern day what a departure from the norm those words represented. While the ideas of the Enlightenment had begun to spread, there were no democracies at the time. Rule was imposed from above, from the divine right of kings and the power of arms. Great empires ruled much of the world, not only Great Britain, but also France, Austria, Russia, and Ottoman. The idea that individuals were endowed with rights rather than granted them by the powerful was, to put it mildly, revolutionary. The Republic was a form of government that emerged from those ideals. Like Rodney Brooks' robot learning to walk, the United States lurched to its feet, stumbled, fell, and occasionally wandered down the wrong path. But those ideals inspired revolutions the world over, and today, most major powers are governed, at least in form, by the people they purport to represent. The problem, of course, is 200-plus years of bureaucratic buildup, permanent interests embedded in the very structure of the government that make it hard for people's voices to be heard. Corruption, whether on the small scale of bureaucrats taking bribes for their services, or on the grand scale of large banks garnering wealth by privatizing profit and socializing loss, is a result of a lack of transparency and the centralization of power in the hands of the few. 
In most world capitals, there's grown up a courtier class that constitutes the permanent government. Contracts are awarded, money is made, and power is conferred by whom you know, not by what you bring. Nowhere is this more evident than in the way politicians, generals, and powerful bureaucrats rotate from government to industry and back again. The number of four-star generals heading up defense contractors or senators becoming lobbyists or former administration officials heading up trade groups is staggering. But as I emphasized in Chapter 3, it's pointless to look for evil people. Look instead for evil systems. Let's ask a question that has a chance to actually change things. What is the set of incentives that drives bad behavior? I truly doubt that any of the Beltway bandits sees themselves as bad people, and I bet that most are truly well-meaning. It's the system that has failed them, and us. But how do we change it? How do we encourage transparency, priorities, and accountability? You know the answer. Scrum. Let's start a few thousand miles west of Washington, D.C., in the Washington State Capitol, Olympia. There, the past two administrations, first a Republican, now a Democrat, have embraced what they call lean government. The current governor, Jay Inslee, said in a campaign interview in the fall of 2012, a lot of what the state does is make decisions. We want to find a way to leave less paper on a desk. The governor's plan has five points that could have been plucked from any campaign platform. One, a world-class education system from preschool through college. Two, a prosperous economy. Three, making Washington a national leader in sustainable energy and a clean environment. Four, healthy and safe communities. Five, efficient, effective, and accountable government. These are not revolutionary goals. This is what people should expect from their government. The very fact they sound cliched is an indicator of their importance. A cliché, after all, is just a truth repeated enough times to become trite. But what's different about Inslee's administration is how they're going about it. They've dubbed their new approach SMART. Specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-bound. In other words, they want to use Scrum. And, in fact, they are. The Office of the Chief Information Officer of the State of Washington is responsible not only for what technology is purchased, but how it's made. The CIO's office is made up of 20 people who are supposed to make sure massive IT failures costing tens of millions of dollars don't happen. Meanwhile, the department handles IT upgrades for the parts of the government that do everything from issue driver's licenses to distribute unemployment benefits to regulate fish and wildlife. In 2012, they oversaw 80 requests, totaling more than $400 million. And they issue standards and guidance to various agencies on how to implement state policy. To do that, they use Scrum. They've actually torn down the cubicle walls in their offices and formed into Scrum teams. Michael D'Angelo, the deputy CIO, says they try to deliver actionable, implementable policies to state departments every week. We're updating our process for how our agencies submit plans for investment. We set the goal that every week we're going to change one thing. We're taking an incremental approach. We have a potentially shippable product Every single week, that can be felt by the agencies. They actually have something tangible. Shippable product, in their case, means actionable changes to policy. It doesn't have to be a thing. It just has to be something, anything, that creates value. Instead of trying to create a grand, overriding document anticipating every piece of the funding process, they've decided to do it piece by piece. 
they want to deliver improvements in how the state is run every single week. Reaction, says D'Angelo, has been mixed. There's a huge fear of not having a perfect product. Speaking in August of 2013, he said, Just last week, we made a change to how customers call us. But there's a lot of documentation where we still have the old way listed. On our website, documents, that kind of thing. So there was all this other stuff we would have to change first. We decided not to wait to just do it. We'll update documentation in the next sprint. The alternative is that we don't give them a better way for months. We're robbing them of value. The other thing the CIO's office is doing is trying to push Scrum through the entire state bureaucracy. It's why they've changed their own processes to Scrum, to become an example, to be able to speak from experience. The benefits are just too great not to. But there are some roadblocks. DeAngelo says that one thing they've realized is that in some cases, the waterfall method is actually written into state law. Changing that can be tough. The state of Washington funds things in two-year cycles. You have to ask for big chunks. You can't say we'll add value until you tell us to stop, says D'Angelo. The government wants to see that it's going to cost this amount of money and that we'll get this amount of value in this time frame. That's so they can talk about it with citizens, even though we know it's much more inefficient. Part of the problem is that in the United States, both at the federal and state level, legislatures are broken into committees. One group of lawmakers looks at education, another at crime, another at the budget, and yet another at social services. They are fractured. They never look at the whole picture, says Rick Anderson. He's a consultant to state agencies, counties, and cities in Washington, Oregon, California, and Hawaii. He has worked with the legislatures, and he says that while change may take a while, it has to happen. He thinks they should start setting performance-based goals. Okay, Agency X. Here are your goals. Here are your expected outcomes. Once you have that, you can start writing legislation that is outcome-based, he says. In a revamped, scrum-driven world, instead of approving a specific plan to build a bridge across a river, a legislative body would say to the highway department, we want X number of people to be able to travel over this waterway in Y amount of time with Z cost. How you do that is up to you. That would allow for discovery and innovation. Instead, the norm these days is construction projects that run hundreds of millions of dollars over budget. The reason? As crews work on the project, they discover new problems and new ways of solving them. Instead of stifling that kind of innovation with change control boards and massive reporting, we should be encouraging it. But what about those ideals I started this section with, where a society shapes itself through a document, a constitution, say? Well... One country decided that the way to develop a constitution that truly represented the will of the people was to use Scrum. In 2008, a completely avoidable financial crisis hit the world. Big banks spun prices out of control, leveraging themselves over and over again by taking on more bad debt than could ever be repaid. One of the countries hit hardest was Iceland. Privatized banks there had been spun off by the government and had taken huge risks in the financial markets. As they say on Wall Street, if you don't know who the sucker in the room is, you're the sucker. In this case, Iceland was the sucker. The amount of money they borrowed was staggering for such a small country. Eventually, the banks had valuations 12 times the size of the national budget. When it all came crashing down, the Icelandic economic miracle was in tatters. 
In an expression of outrage, the citizens of Reykjavik took to the streets and banged pots and pans together outside the Althing, their parliament. The government that had overseen the financial practices collapsed in what became known as the Pots and Pans Revolution. The government stepped down and new leadership promised a new constitution. To write that constitution, some officials decided to be open and engage with people. So they formed a constitutional committee which decided to use Scrum. Each week, the committee would meet, decide on one section of the document, and deliver it to the public every Thursday. Then they'd collect feedback from the people through Facebook and Twitter. In just a few months, they had a new document that had won the overwhelming support of the Icelandic public. It was a new expression of how they saw themselves. Unfortunately, the powers that had benefited from the financial fraud struck back. After filing delay after delay, after obfuscating, complaining, and acting against the will of the people, a new parliament made up of the same parties that oversaw the destruction of Iceland's economy decided to simply ignore the new constitution. A key demand of the revolution was denied. For now, anyway. The world is changing, and those who profit from secrecy and deception will soon find they have few places left to hide. Scrum is changing the world around them, and while they may fight a rearguard action, change is inevitable. The Scrum framework is just so much faster, transparent, and responsive to the wishes of the people that it will ultimately defeat the politicians who stand in its way. Change or die. How will all work one day? Earlier in this book, I discussed the martial arts concept of Shu Ha Ri. People in the Shu state follow the rules exactly, so they learn the ideas behind them. People in the Ha state begin to create their own style within the rules, adapting them to their needs. People in the Ri state exist beyond the rules. They embody the ideals. Watching a true master in the Ri state is like looking at a moving work of art. His or her actions seem impossible. But that's because the master has become a philosophy in flesh, an idea made real. All of this, which is to preface the fact that there are some rules in Scrum, and you would do well to both learn and transcend them. I've included them as an appendix to this book, Implementing Scrum, How to Begin. And I've written chapter after chapter on why those rules exist, encouraging you, I hope, to apply them in your personal life, your company, and your community. The paradox of those rules, though, is that they eliminate boundaries, they create freedom, and for many, freedom can be terrifying. One company that has learned how to set its employees free and optimize innovation is Valve. To look at the firm is to behold how we all may inevitably organize ourselves, whether it's to make better software, raise people out of poverty, plan a wedding, or fix up a house. Formed in the 1990s as a video game company making revolutionary hits such as Half-Life and Portal, Valve is completely self-funded and owns all its own intellectual property. Almost all of its 300-plus employees are located in a single office tower in Bellevue, Washington. The company has over 50 million customers, and it makes hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And no one is really in charge. Valve's origin is, of all places, Microsoft. Nowadays, Microsoft is a very different company. But back in the 1990s, it was the epitome of the top-down corporation. Everyone defined themselves by how far down the corporate pyramid they were from founder and CEO Bill Gates, back then the richest man in the world and still one of the richest. Greg Coomer is among the group of people who founded Valve. He worked for Gabe Newell, who headed a development group at Microsoft. 
Greg describes how that hyper-attentiveness to stature played out in the very tools people used. At Microsoft, there was an Outlook plugin called OrgChart, and any email anyone would get, they'd click on that and see where the sender fit in the company. How many clicks away from Bill they were, how many direct reports they had, were they an enemy or a friend, all this could be discovered just from their position in the org chart. Greg says that if you zoomed out, you could see that there was this giant pyramid with Bill at the top. If you zoomed in, there are bunches of smaller pyramids. It was pyramids all the way down. Except for Gabe Newell's group. There were a few hundred people in it, and they all reported directly to him. It stuck out visually in the org chart app, says Greg. It was something that didn't fit, and it was causing political problems because he didn't have the right number of managers or the right structure. The company's response was almost like that of white blood cells massing to attack an infection. Now, of course, Microsoft already has 3,000 people working on Scrum Teams and is moving towards some 20,000 people. But back then, this infection had to be removed. So Gabe, Greg, and a few others left and formed their own company, Valve. A few years ago, Greg tried to compose an employee handbook explaining how Valve works. The document didn't list pay grades or whether glasses were covered by the flex spending account. Rather, it was an attempt to convey the Valve ethos. I figured out it was taking 9 to 16 months for people to internalize the Valve way of doing things. It took a long time for people to feel empowered, says Greg. The document was intended to ease people in quicker. But Greg and the other founders struggled with the words because they didn't want it to seem that the explanation was coming from on high. The first section is Welcome to Flatland. It's our shorthand way of saying that we don't have any management and nobody reports to anybody else. We do have a founder president, but even he isn't your manager. This company is yours to steer toward opportunities and away from risks. You have the power to greenlight projects. You have the power to ship products. A flat structure removes every organizational barrier between your work and the customer enjoying that work. Every company will tell you that the customer is boss, but here that statement has weight. There's no red tape stopping you from figuring out for yourself what our customers want and then giving it to them. If you're thinking to yourself, wow, that sounds like a lot of responsibility, you're right. Here's how a project starts at Valve. Someone decides to start it. That's it. They figure out what they think is the best use of their time and energy, what will serve the company and the customer the best, and they do it. How do they get other people to work with them on it? They convince them. If that other person thinks it's a good idea, they'll join that team, or cabal as it's called at Valve. All the hundreds of desks at Valve have wheels. As people start to work together on a project, they literally vote with their desks, moving them into a new configuration. Greg describes the way it worked for a product called Big Picture. One of Valve's biggest products is their Steam platform. It delivers video games and software to users. Both Valve games and third-party games are on the platform. It's the dominant way PC games are delivered today. But as Greg recalls, at one point, he and a couple of others feared they were already reaching as many customers as they could, more than 50 million. We started thinking about how our company was growing and how Steam is growing and we were looking at what we thought would be the limit on the number of customers we could reach. We wanted to reach people in other places, in their living room, on mobile devices, whatever. So he started talking to people, some designers, some other folks. He convinced them it was a good idea 
to come up with something that would work on televisions, phones, and tablets, and they created the idea of Big Picture, a way to deliver video games to those platforms. But the people Greg had convinced didn't have all the skills needed to actually make it. They knew what they wanted it to look like, but they didn't have the ability to implement it. So we started mocking up what it could look like, and then we made a movie of how cool it would be, and we used that movie to recruit people to the project. We couldn't code it, so we needed to recruit people who could. So they did. It shipped about a year later. Who decided when to ship it? The people who worked on it. Who decided it was good enough? The people who worked on it. When a company has optimized itself around innovation, they usually change in a fundamental way by eliminating internal structures and hierarchies, any internal structure, says Greg. Valve operates that way all the time. They don't wait to be forced into change by a crisis. They are constantly changing. It's the day-to-day way they run the company. From the Valve Handbook. Valve is not averse to all organizational structure. It crops up in many forms all the time, temporarily. But problems show up when hierarchy or codified divisions of labor either haven't been created by the group's members or when those structures persist for long periods of time. We believe those structures inevitably begin to serve their own needs rather than those of Valve's customers. The hierarchy will begin to reinforce its own structure by hiring people who fit its shape, adding people to fill subordinate support roles. Its members are also incented to engage in rent-seeking behaviors that take advantage of the power structure rather than focusing on simply delivering value to customers. It may seem that Valve would be vulnerable to freeloaders, to people who want to take advantage of the system, but peer review is constant. Sure, people get to decide what to work on, but if they can't convince anyone else it's a good idea, maybe it really isn't. Greg says that instead of having the luxury of having someone tell you what to do, you have a group of peers telling you what they think of what you've decided to do. It isn't a perfect system. No human organization is. But usually at Valve, personnel concerns are raised first by fellow team members talking with one another. They may bring in others to consult. It may result in feedback, a harsh corrective move, or even dismissal. But it's a team decision. The exception occurred in 2013, when Valve developed a problem their system wasn't quite able to handle. For the first time ever, they hired a large group of people all at once. They decided to branch into hardware and mobile, and they simply didn't have the skills to do it. So they hired a bunch of people to tackle the problem. But hiring that many people simultaneously who weren't acclimated to the Valve way of doing things caused problems. There were pockets of workers not making decisions in the traditional Valve way. They were telling other people what to do. And, most damning, not performing up to the high Valve standards. Normally, Other team members wouldn't tolerate that kind of behavior, but because everyone in the group was new, their peers didn't have enough confidence in the Valve way to take action. So a group of the core Valve people who have been around for a while took action to protect the Valve ethos, even though they had to act outside of the ethos to do it, says Greg. The company fired a few dozen people at once. Talking to Greg, you can tell he sees that as a failure. He describes it as an almost biological reaction, one that was oddly parallel to how Microsoft acted toward Valve's founders. Organisms attacking foreign invaders to protect the whole. We've been talking a lot about what it means to our stated goals that we had to act outside them, reflects Greg, and how we can avoid it in the future. 
and not have to rely on a group of people who have been at the company a long time. He stops for a moment and then says with confidence, by this time next year, we'll have figured it out. There's a faith in what they've done. They've consistently sought to maximize human freedom, ability, and creativity. While there have been occasional hiccups, it's just too powerful a way of operating not to be replicated over and over again. This is a capitalist innovation as powerful as many industrial innovations that change the nature of work, he says. It is so useful and so successful that there's no way it can't be a force of change in the world. Do they use Scrum? Well, says Greg, you walk down the hallway and you see a lot of whiteboards on wheels covered with sticky notes. But they don't force people to use it. They let people decide what process is right for them. As with most matters, Greg and the other founders refrain from telling anyone what to do. But a lot of Valve's workers have decided that, given the choice to do anything, they choose Scrum. And that's enough for me. You don't see many companies like Valve yet, but more are appearing each day. And not only in software. Morningstar, the global leader in tomato processing, has no bosses. Each employee negotiates with other employees as to roles and responsibilities, whether they involve sales, driving trucks, or doing sophisticated engineering. With any company, first, you have to get employees to set themselves free. And then, you have to get them to accept the responsibility that comes with that. Or, as Funkadelic put it back in 1970, free your mind and your ass will follow. What can't we do? Cynicism is perhaps a rational response to despair, but it is one of the most corrosive of human states. The early years of this century have been rife with the elements that breed cynicism. Senseless wars draped in patriotism, nihilistic terrorism masquerading as faith, greed cloaked in ideological righteousness, ambitious political courtiers pursuing their own selfish ends. The cynic will sigh knowingly and say, that's just the way the world works. Humans are essentially corrupt and selfish. Pretending otherwise is just naive. And that way, they justify constraints and rationalize limits. Over the past two decades, I've delved deeply into the literature of what makes greatness. The surprising answer is that fundamentally, humans want to be great. People want to do something purposeful to make the world, even if just in a small way, a better place. The key is getting rid of what stands in their way, removing the impediments to their becoming who they're capable of becoming. That's what Scrum does. It sets goals and systematically, step by step, works out how to get there. And even more important, it identifies what is stopping us from getting there. Scrum is the code of the anti-cynic. Scrum is not wishing for a better world or surrendering to the one that exists. Rather, it is a practical, actionable way to implement change. I know of Scrum projects aimed at delivering vaccines to endangered children and of others intended to build houses more cheaply, eliminate petty corruption, catch violent criminals, eliminate hunger, and send people to other planets. None of the above are dreamy desires. Rather, they're actionable plans. Make no mistake, these plans will have to be inspected, adapted, and changed every step of the way but they're in motion. All around the world, rapid iterations are occurring, propelling us toward a better world. That's what I hope you'll take away from this book, the knowledge that it is possible, that you can change things, 
that you don't have to accept the way things are. All men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds wake in the day to find it was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act their dreams with open eyes to make it possible. T.E. Lawrence, from The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Don't listen to cynics who tell you what can't be done. Amaze them with what can. The Takeaway Scrum accelerates all human endeavors. The type of project or problem doesn't matter. Scrum can be used in any endeavor to improve performance and results. Scrum for Schools In the Netherlands, a growing number of teachers are using Scrum to teach high school. They see an almost immediate improvement in test scores of more than 10%, and they're engaging all sorts of students, from vocational to gifted. Scrum for Poverty In Uganda, the Grameen Foundation is using Scrum to deliver agricultural and market data to poor rural farmers. The result? Double the yield and double the revenue for some of the poorest people on the planet. Rip up your business cards. Get rid of all titles, all managers, all structures. Give people the freedom to do what they think best and the responsibility to be accountable for it. You'll be surprised at the results.